0: everybody and welcome to another episode of my javascript story this week we're talking to jonathan martin jonathan do you want to say hello
1: well hello as uh charles said i'm jonathan martin
0: (laughs) yeah we uh talked a bit about your book man when was that it was episode 396 i got the link right here
1: yeah i want to say it it.
0: it was published
1: yeah yeah september october
0: yep When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to devchat.tv slash g2i to learn more about what g2i has to offer. In my experience, g2i is linked up with experienced developers that can fit my budget, and the g2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to devchat.tv slash g2i to learn more about g2i. So yeah, good stuff. So uh, I'm a little curious
1: before we get too far in, what are you working on now? Uh, That's actually what I'm trying to decide. So I was working on a video series on YouTube called TLDR. Uh It was a screencast series designed for working web developers, trying to make it really, really fast episodes and fast paced. Got into that. I got about six episodes in and realized this has taken a ton of time for each episode. So kind of back to the drawing board. It might be time for book number two, Mm -hmm. Or maybe I should switch gears and finally go in on building an online course, which to be honest, I've kind of been resisting. So TBD.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know how that goes. Of course, uh, lately I've just been uh, chasing podcast sponsors. But once that settles down a little bit, yeah, I'm trying to figure out the same thing. I've got a couple of projects in the works, but yeah, it's like, do I do a course? Do I need another book? Do I you know, build out, finish off one of the SAS things that I started. I have like three of them. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's an idea. Uh, so for those videos, I made a, a react powered um, teleprompter that uh-huh. was, uh, I got to play with WebAssembly for the first time, which was really awesome. Actually, um, you know, it's just a teleprompter that syncs with your voice based on a transcript you give it, which is a surprisingly interesting problem because of course, mm-hmm. voice recognition is very imperfect. So right. I had fun. Uh, WebAssembly stuff porting over a algorithm that's popular with, what is it, for finding gene sequences? Something like that. Basically a Uh sequence alignment algorithm. So apparently fastest implementation was in C, brought it over with WebAssembly. So maybe I should turn that into a thing.
0: Interesting. That sounds really cool. So uh, yeah, this, this show, we kind of talk about how you got into programming and yeah, what you're working on and all that stuff. I I am kind of curious, you know, since you've written a functional express book and you've written, um, you know, you've done TLDR, you've done a whole bunch of training. How did you get into programming in the
1: first place? Well, so I grew up with Connects and Legos as a kid.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I
1: I think when I was eleven or twelve, I got my first robotics kit. It was called the the Droid Developer Kit. That was a Star Wars themed kit. I don't know if you remember that at all. I I was really excited when when uh you know back when the lego sent out the lego magazines and you're just uh-huh. through it trying to figure out all the things that you're going to put on your christmas list as a kid so oh yeah um that was a pretty cool kit because um you got basically you know all the lego parts and stuff but you also got this little microprocessor with a motor built in
2: that
1: uh-huh. wasn't programmable or anything um but around this time my parents got my brother and i a shared computer with internet access so i started browsing on the internet you know i'd I'd already done all the basic, you could basically select from one of seven programs to just play back Uh on this tiny little thing. And I was like, I want more. I want to do more. And I started looking on the internet and found out that it had like this secret mode that you could activate and actually control it remotely. So this got me really, really excited. So I had to go deeper, right? So that summer, um, I went and did a ton of yard work around the neighborhood and saved up for the big boy kit that Lego did at the time, uh, which also came with a microprocessor. It was called the RCX. That mm-hmm. could actually be programmed, and you would program it over infrared on the computer, and you'd use a drag-and-drop block language. It was very much targeted at young kids, so it was pretty simple. Right. And you could put, like, five programs on it, and you could attach sensors and motors to it. So that mm-hmm. Pretty much became if if I wasn't doing schoolwork, I would be doing that. But um, I really hated the drag and drop after a while, so um, I finally got a hand-me-down computer and learned my first text language called NQC, not quite C. Oh wow! Yeah, isn't that an awesome name for a C language? Yeah, it is. It was an itty bitty subset of C that compiled down to the same assembly code that would run on Uh the microprocessor. Right. that was pretty phenomenal. You could have, I think you could have 32 variables was the max and you, uh, I was really great at deeply nesting if else statements and not losing my sanity. That was, that was my power skill as a kid.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a superpower.
1: Oh man. (laughs) Oh gosh. I still remember for, I did a, I did a robot for a science fair project and I really wanted to show off the code and it was like 10 pages of code at small print. I was so proud. I went, I printed all of it out and I'm pretty sure if any coder had looked at it, they would have just said, why are the curlies 14 levels deep? <laughs> I think this was also before I learned that there was such a thing as else if. So I'm pretty sure I did if else and then within that, another if else. Uh-huh. Anyway, that was my first text language. I had a blast with that. Um, and at the end of middle school, I found out about a different programming language called RoboLab. Um, this was, this was really popular in schools. It may even still be popular in the schools now. And it was also a block-based programming language, but it's data flow. It's, really, it's based on a paradigm that's really popular in engineering circles. It's uh, visual, but very very powerful. And so mm-hmm. um, I started using this about the time I was starting my physical science class in high school, which was perfect timing because it had great data logging capabilities. So I kind of just got to cheat for all my homework and just basically – have a robot take all the measurements for me. <laughs> nice. So it was, it feels like cheating. But yeah, basically I was just looking for any opportunity to make robots be my schoolwork. So um yep. but at this point I'd actually never really touched a computer program. I think when I was a kid, I just envisioned that I was gonna go build robots. And um that kind of changed. Um so my dad is a mechanical engineer and he worked at a place. That built automated testing rigs for things like airplane uh, parts or um, dynos for, yeah, different different engine parts and stuff like that. And so they used a programming language called LabVIEW from National Instruments, which okay. is a block diagram flow program. It's very much built around data acquisition and controlling machinery. Mm-hmm. So turns out RoboLab is just a stripped down version of that. So um, with a little prodding and poking, my dad sent me a license at LabVIEW to try out computer programming. And I fell in love with that. I s- kind of just started moving away from robotics into the digital realm. Um, and when I was 15, I got to um, work at that company and write my, my first like real computer programs, like rewriting some of the control software for some of the automated test rigs. So kind of from there, somehow that evolved into web. Uh huh. Actually, not sure how that ended up in web come to think of it
0: it's it's interesting hearing you talk about this though i my 14 year old um we got him a droid inventor kit so it has like this plastic case that's r 2D2 <laughs> you're talking about this and i'm like yeah my son's been playing with something like that and it has the block, block programming he just does it on his phone
1: oh that's crazy
0: and yeah. uh yeah and then he uploads the program and then the thing you know moves around Anyway, so yeah, uh, you're making me hopeful here
1: (laughs) for my kid. It was definitely crucial. I, I just don't know how I would have stumbled into it otherwise. Um, and I didn't think I'd like computer programming. Honestly, I remember Mm -hmm. telling my dad, he, I think he wanted to just like, see if I liked it, but I kept telling him, no dad, I want sensors. I want motors. I want things that move. Right. And, um, it didn't take long before I realized that with a computer you have an infinite number of sensors. And so, you know, for this, you know, 13 year old kid whose Christmas list always looks like I want more sensors. I want more sensors. That was like a dream come true.
0: Right. Um, Crazy.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think how that turned into web. I think, so my best friend, um, I think made a website probably when I was like freshman year of college and it had rounded corners. This was before border radius, I guess. And I was really excited and really jealous. So that was just enough kick to like, go make my own website. Um, but I hated writing out all the HTML. So I was like, okay, I'm going to write the bare minimum amount of HTML and make everything else be JavaScript powered. So I just, I really did not want to code out the HTML. I wanted to have like this empty page and have the JavaScript take over and fill it in. And so, um, that just kind of meant that one had to learn JavaScript, so I, Things went downhill from there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I yeah, I just kind of ran across the web when it when I was in high school and got into it that way. But I'd done some other programming before too. And sometimes it's just enough to have this other background and then get exposed to some new idea and then run with it. Right.
1: For sure, and it's interesting how much. Honestly, I went in the thought that like a visual or a block diagram kind of thing could have transferred well into a text because I think the for web, honestly, I really hadn't done any text-based programming. Um, I could never quite get my hands on something. I tried Visual Basic uh-huh. and just got frustrated. I think I tried um, Automator Scripts. So I tried a bunch of those different things, but for whatever reason, I couldn't get the hang of it. And so um, for a while, I just thought I was really going to do a lot of LabVIEW stuff and work in the... Um, the engineering space. But um, for whatever reason, web and JavaScript, with it just being so incredibly approachable and not even having to install anything, which was a big deal. When I, was, mm-hmm. when I was still on a Windows computer, anytime I wanted to install something, that usually meant that I'd have to wheedle my dad into putting in the administrator password, installing things, and being responsible right. for it, the registry got all messed up. So, <laughs> installing things for me as a kid was a big ordeal. And so, I'm like, if I'm going to learn something new, I don't want it to be a pain. Yep. And, uh, yeah, web was just already there. You've already got all the tools for it, and um, you didn't have to buy anything, which was kind of a new concept to me up until that time. All the software and programming languages I used, you had to pay for quite a bit.
0: Yeah. You know, um, I don't know how old you are, but uh, when I got into web, JavaScript was just something that you had to deal with, for lack of a better <laughs> term, right? Is that kind of where you got in, or were you kind of... Uh, to javascript from the beginning
1: let's see um 27 now i got into javascript freshman year that would have been 16 or 17 so i'm, I'm trying to do math here so a decade ago 2010 uh-huh. so this would have been after the the iphone so not i'm, I'm sure it was okay. a lot more amenable by the time i yeah. got into it but you still had um ActiveX, you know, uh-huh. on Internet Explorer. I do remember Internet Explorer <laughs> 7 quite vividly.
0: Yeah, I remember getting the ActiveX errors
1: on stuff. Yes. So I think I missed, I missed a small portion. The, oh, no, I missed the tables. I think that was the fiasco I gladly missed.
0: Yeah, table layouts. Eh. I remember the good old days when jQuery came out and everyone was like, Oh, this is such a breath of fresh air. You kind of came in, I think, right at the beginning of the framework ramp up.
1: I think so. Wasn't that around 2009 or so?
0: Yeah, we started seeing things like Backbone and Ember. Yeah. So when you got into JavaScript, I mean, how was that? Because it sounds like you'd been doing web for a while. So what kind of got you over the hump for JavaScript?
1: Uh, Probably just jealousy at first, Uh, you know. Uh, my best friend and I would just kind of like say, hey, I've implemented a new feature on my site. The funny, I think at the <laughs> time, it was, it was really just a blog. So I mean, you know, come on, we should have just hand coded it. But you know, when you're 16 or 17 years old and you've got time to kill, why would you possibly yeah. hand code HTML if you could write JavaScript? Of course. Generate? And so I think we just kind of ended up going back and forth on that and um, a little bit of a competitive spirit.
0: Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out.
1: I think about six months after that, actually, I got serious enough about it that I started learning Ruby on Rails. Uh Uh-huh. So I went and worked, I think, freshman end of freshman year, I worked at a local web consultancy. Uh, Gosh, what were they called? They were called Core Data and they were based just outside of Atlanta. And so I went and worked there, um, sort of full time, but sort of intern. We couldn't quite figure out which it was. So it was interesting because it was a very small company. So you had to wear a lot of hats. And that also meant that you were uh, working with bug reports. You were also building out new features. You were being a consultant. Um, they would build a lot of software for nonprofits, and so we would have to um, drive out to the client, you know, and consult. And so that right. was like a side that you know the seventeen-year-old me had not seen was the consulting element in working with clients and working with people. But then on top of that, the web, uh, being that they were a web hosting and consultancy, you saw just about everything. One site would be in Django, Python; the other would be. Our Ruby on Rails product that we built. Mm-hmm. The other would be a three year old version of that same software with lots of bugs. So it was just, um, it was kind of a great way to see a lot of different things and also see how things could be catastrophically uh, prone to fall apart on you, which is a, um, for a while actually, that made me not really like JavaScript because a lot of the times what would fall apart. Was the front end stuff. I think we right. uh, were still stuck on prototype. And <laughs> there you go. Yes. Oh, I'm trying to remember. Um, <coughs> and Scriptaculous? Oh, I don't remember Scriptaculous. I'm trying to remember, though, with um, Rails, it used to be that if you wanted to re render just a portion of the yeah. view and um, dynamically insert that on the front end, there used to be, I can't remember what that was called now. What, Turbolinks? Or... Thank you. No, this was before Turbolinks. Oh, Turbolinks right. It Rails was. Or, we were on Rails
0: two, and we yeah, they had a term for that, it, and it was
1: uh, yeah, it was uh, an option you would pass. Man, I know I'm 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 feeling it. So yeah, so it meant that we ended up um, doing a lot of front end stuff, and our main product basically remote. Kind of, it was remote. True. Oh, that does that does sound familiar. Yeah, and so we had. Um, the product had a large front end component because it was basically a CMS for nonprofits. Uh-huh. It would let them manage um, their site, donations, events, calendar. It was a little bit like what planning center online became mm-hmm. or uh, what it, planning center is today. That was kind of what we were aiming for at the time. And so it had just so much front end stuff. And um, that was a little bit of a pain actually uh I was not happy with JavaScript for those, those few years. I worked there through college, and I was always excited to get into the Rails side. Um, and actually, So I kept doing a lot of JavaScript, but I didn't really love it at the time. I didn't really love it, honestly, until I finished up college. I left that job and then went to work at um, Big Nerd Ranch mm-hmm. as a front-end and back-end developer.
0: Yep. Yeah, and Big Nerd Ranch, uh, my first... Um, exposure to them was when I started an iOS development podcast. And they, they had kind of the definitive book for that and things like that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, they're still there down there in Atlanta doing all that kinds of are. interesting stuff. That
1: they are. They're still zip lining too. Zip lining? So that's kind of one of the, the fun elements of the Vineyard Ranch boot camps is it's kind of, it's meant to be a monastic style retreat. And depending on where they host it, uh, they normally try to do it out in the woods. Mm-hmm. And one of our locations used to have um, zip lines. So I just, oh, nice. whenever I would think of teaching that boot camp, really the only reason I wanted to teach it was I just wanted to go zip lining. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, nice. They, they pay you by letting you uh, slide down the rope?
1: Pretty much. They would even feed me. It was pretty awesome. I mean, oh, nice. I just... I teach JavaScript, I get food, I get to go zip lining. I get to go hiking. I mean, come on, they didn't even need to pay me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice.
1: I'm glad they did. Yeah,
0: yeah, got to pay for the rest of life. So I'm kind of curious, is that where you first got into teaching then or were you doing, uh, you know, instruction and things like that in other places before that?
1: No, I mean, as going through high school, I did some tutoring and mm-hmm. – for a, a while, the, um, math kind of seems like an interesting career path, not so much a career path. It, it just, it was interesting enough to me that I thought, you know, I should tutor this. And so, um, but I don't think I really had a heart for the teaching element of it yet. Um, right. my brother and my mom were in teaching, but they were doing it from music. So they would teach, um, lessons. And so they were into music pedagogy. I, I don't really think I was interested in teaching at the time, honestly. So Big Nerd Ranch is definitely where that changed. I went in there to be a consultant um, doing front-end and back-end. But about this time, I had started doing a lot of blogging and writing. And Mm -hmm. I landed my first um, international speaking gig. I'd definitely spoken at meetups before. That was actually how I got the job at Big Nerd Ranch. I went and spoke at, um, they used to host the Ruby meetup that was right off campus where I was going right. to college. And so that's kind of how I ended up getting in there. So I'd been doing meetups, but I hadn't really thought of the, the teaching element. But, um, at, once I was at Big Nerd Ranch, kind of they, they do a pretty equal split of consulting and, uh, the teaching, but the teaching is probably what they're best known for, especially in the iOS circles because of the books
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, they had a need come up, they needed an instructor. I thought, well, this is you know kind of interesting, let's try it. And so I went and taught that and I, I, just, I didn't wanna come back. I did not wanna come back to consulting after that because it was so much fun getting to work with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, definitely a little bit of an ego boost there for sure. Um, right. <laughs> as as often comes with teaching, you know, mm-hmm. and so between all of that, um, I was like, oh, man, I have to come back and consult. I love the consulting. Uh, it was very much what powered the training. And that was a big part of the selling point for those boot camps is, you know, you're working, you're learning from people who this is their career and they are consultants most of the time and they just happen to teach. But there were several instructors there who were just incredibly passionate about the art of teaching itself um, Mm -hmm. about pedagogy and so i got to learn a lot about that side and started contributing to the materials and in that process got to learn a little bit more about different approaches to teaching um slapping terms on some ideas and i ended up getting to teach more um and eventually got to start writing material for the book that was behind the web course in particular and uh, helped work with clients to help them figure out how we should customize it. So it just became, I just became steadily a bigger and bigger part of what I did, even though I was at a company primarily as a consultant early on, but that role evolved. And by the time um, I moved on from Big Nerd Ranch, I was running the course and contributing to the book. So I fell in love with that. Nice.
0: So uh, when you left Big Nerd Ranch, I mean, how much of your time was spent teaching and doing curriculum things versus consulting?
1: Probably by the last year, I'd say about 20 or 30% of the time was teaching related things. So I might teach our one week boot camp uh, maybe four to six times a year it would normally be a mix of a couple open enrollment courses where people come in zip line Mm -hmm. or it would be corporate where we actually would go out to the client and, um, train their employees. And so it would normally be like four to six weeks of that. And then once I started working on the curriculum that took a significant portion, um, I was helping write our, our new react course at the time as well. And so by about that last year, I'd say around like 20 or 30%, but most of the time, Uh, Would definitely be spent in consulting, which kind of a double-edged sword. You're really glad that you're doing it because you're like you're wanting to make sure you're not in an echo chamber and that you're not just um, talking about great practices. You're actually bringing great practices and design wisdom from actually having run into the issues. But of course, you know when when you're addicted to teaching, you're like, can't I just can't I just do more teaching? Yep. So so yeah. So did you move on to some place where you could do more teaching then, or? Yes, actually. So um, one of my managers at Big Nerd Ranch was teaching at a place called Digital Crafts. They are a career switching boot camp. So they're a 16 week boot uh-huh. camp. And so I went to teach there because I was like, i really, I got to try this teaching full time thing. I don't think I realized just how much of a learning curve it would be for me to teach career switchers. Right. Because I, I kind of assumed, hey, you know, I've been teaching intermediate to senior developers getting grilled by them, surely, you know, with career switchers, <laughs> it's going to be easier, right? Right. And, you no, know, it turned out that I felt like such a total noob um, in comparison when I got in there because uh, working with the career switchers, one, they swallow up everything you say, but then, two, they question everything you say. And right. you begin to realize just how many holes you have in your own understanding. And so I was like, I thought I was past this. You know, I, I, I thought I'd figured – out yeah. my teaching style, but um, and I was so glad that I did digital crafts because um, in working with students for 16 weeks, there are certain kinds of relationships that build your teaching style. Like from being with students that long, you begin to learn how important physical cues in the classroom are. For example, where do you place the whiteboards? Where do you place um, even the screens? Where do you place the tables? How do you group them together? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you encourage students to get up and stand up because there's a lot of these hidden cues when you're collaborating with someone, if you're both sitting down or if one person's standing, the other person's sitting, the way that we communicate ideas changes. And those were the sort of dynamics that I didn't get to see an experiment in the one week camp with a bunch of senior developers from all over the globe. It was very different being in a classroom full time with these students and they've basically given up their jobs to do this. So they're really committed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where my interest transitioned from teaching into pedagogy, Uh, the subtle semantic, the semantic difference there being that pedagogy is thinking intentionally and experimenting with how am I helping students absorb relevant knowledge faster in a way that will stick and that will apply well in the industry. And that's just the sort of thing you uh, maybe can't really fill out as easily in a one week camp versus 16 weeks with the the same students. And they really, uh, they really listen to everything you say, but they also will challenge everything you say. And you, you realize, wow, I've been really sloppy in how I communicate. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's something that I really haven't thought much about. So it's, it's interesting. And I'm starting to get into the space where, I mean, we communicate over the podcast, but it's, it's pretty one way. It's, yeah, I'm getting into the space where we're doing um, much more in the area of not necessarily even training in person, but just, yeah, putting out more structured content, I guess, is is a way of thinking about it. And so thinking about, yeah, how people absorb things there and yeah, in person, it's got to be totally different. And so what are one or two lessons that you've learned looking
1: into that? Oh, I, in particular, um, when you're working with students, Um, I'd always heard, um, assume infinite intelligence, but zero prior knowledge. I'd heard that a few times before. The thing is, when you're you're teaching senior students, you can very often assume all the intelligence and all of the prior knowledge, knowledge. get away with it and not realize that you're making that assumption. And not so with the career switchers. So I feel like in switching to career switchers, a lot of the things that were head knowledge transitioned into application knowledge mm-hmm. and um when i think about a lot of the the things that i think of as characterizing how i want my pedagogy and teaching to come across one of the biggest things was the role of failure in the classroom mm-hmm. so by the time you're working with intermediate to senior developers i feel like they're really good at picking out a path to success pretty quickly you know they've got a good feel of the space and they can into it the basic ideas of debugging, um, even in a new language really quickly, not so with the career switchers. and so what I found in particular was that students um, career switchers are extremely wary of failure or of any path that passes through failure, even if it's just a waypoint. So an example of this: um, I had a student that had written some code and it was not working correctly and I was trying to encourage them, you know, to do some different debugging techniques Mm -hmm. and they froze and I wasn't quite sure what was going on. I was trying to figure out, is this person overwhelmed? Am I overwhelming them? What's going on here? And it came down to they wanted to just delete the code and start over. Mm -hmm. And so they, they weren't there with me mentally when I was asking them, well, why don't we try to do this debugging? They wanted to throw the code away and write it out again. And I didn't uh, really realize that was going on and I found that to be a recurring theme. And part of that was because of the necessity of when you start debugging and making changes, you're working with failing code and there's nothing nicer than throwing away code starting from scratch and building up from that. And that's definitely a great way to build. But what I found is that the students who stuck with the code that they had written and we're just tweaking it, which I think we take for granted as developers that that's how you build software, but um, apparently not so with someone who's new to career switching. I suppose like as an artist, yeah. if, as an artist, if you sit and start drawing something and you make a mistake, the beginner artist's first inclination is probably to tear out that sheet and start over again. Uh-huh. A
0: few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit, and you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon, And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile. And other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. Well, and we don't communicate either that programming is so much tinkering, right?
1: Exactly, and I think another way to put that is that coding is about turning failure into success. It's about turning code that's almost working to not quite working. we just call that debugging. Uh And I think that's a skill that, you know, we expect for sure in the development industry, that's probably one of the single greatest skills of a developer, but (laughs) teaching it can be really difficult because especially if you have a career switcher and their first inclination is to start over, they're actually missing out on that process. They're not gonna be able to make the uh, the mental connection of me making this change, solves this problem. So in the future, when I see this problem, I should make this change. And that's where the actual um, useful knowledge that's going to help them in the industry comes from. So that just kind of developed for me into philosophy of facilitating failure, Mm -hmm. which meant that when I taught, I needed to right off the bat, say, if your code is not failing, then maybe you're not being risky enough. And also creating an environment where students were okay with that failure. I think it's easy to take for granted how safe it is to have code that isn't working and to take it to another colleague and say, I'm out of my depth here. I don't know what's going on. You know, there's no, there's no ego Mm -hmm. there, but um, for a lot of the students, that was not the case. It was a very vulnerable time for them. And so having them get to that point where they have the failing code and they approach another colleague you want to create an environment that's conducive to that, where students feel very comfortable reaching out to the person who's sitting next to them or across from them and just saying, help me look through this Mm -hmm. and being okay with that failure. And I I think I found in the end that that, when it came to crunch day for the last project, the students who did the best under pressure and uh, under those deadlines was the students who had done exactly that who had gotten comfortable with working with other colleagues through the failures because now they had built up the knowledge of, I have this problem, probably this, the solution. And that's a sort of knowledge you don't build up by building the perfect application from scratch. Right.
0: That makes sense. So, uh, where are you working at now?
1: So I have been transitioning, to teaching as a freelancer Um, I was obviously I was teaching through big nerd ranch and then at digital crafts Uh, the trouble with the full-time teaching is that the very rigorous schedule actually meant that I couldn't do the other half of my life which is travel so I travel as a landscape photographer Mm -hmm. and also an educator in that space so the TLDR YouTube channel actually came as a result of me first launching a photography channel and kind of learning from that and so with the full-time 16-week boot camps, it's really hard to, uh, to say, oh, I need to go travel right. these, these few weeks, um, go grab some photos, and then come back. It, so it just ended up not working to do it that way. So I'm transitioning back to shorter-term engagements mm-hmm. uh, in the range of like one to four weeks right. and doing that as a freelancer. So I may very well work with some previous clients and like, work as a contract instructor. But that also, that ended up turning into doing the book, um, doing the YouTube channel, possibly launching an online course. I still haven't made up my mind on that. I honestly was very anti-online course for a while. And I, I just, I loved the aspect of in-person. So that's definitely my first, uh, that's what I'd like to do first. But um, right. I've been talking with someone about the possibility of doing some online uh, courses. It's just, it's a very saturated market. And so... I'm not entirely sure what niche I want to pursue that I can bring some value to.
0: Right, that makes sense. Well, cool. Well, hopefully that works out if people want to hire you, where do they find you?
1: Yeah, they can go to jonathanleemartin.com. I've got um the three main things I do are speaking, uh helping people or just outright writing curriculum and of course um training. So training on location or mm-hmm. seminars or workshops that sort of thing. So yeah, all of that is on the site. Also, if people like reading a quick blurb on my teaching philosophy and links to blog posts, videos, teaching samples, that sort of thing.
0: Sounds good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, jump over and do some picks. Um, I don't know if you have anything prepared. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks on my own and then uh, you can, yeah, you can shout out about whatever you want. So one of my picks is um, I've kind of gotten back into doing the Pomodoro technique, which is where you work for 25 minutes uninterrupted and then you take a break. And um, one of the tools, so you can get Pomodoro timers for your phone or for your computer. The problem is, is that I tend to ignore uh, notifications on my phone or my computer sometimes. And so I'll get deep into a problem and then... You know, uh, I'll realize, oh, I've been at this for an hour and a half, and I should have stopped and taken a break, and now I can't. So I got myself um, an analog Pomodoro timer. Uh, Pomodoro is the Italian word for tomato, so mine looks like a tomato. And
1: like my Bob kids tomato. Have,
0: <laughs> My kids have messed it up, so um, when I start the timer, it counts down to 55 instead of zero. So anyway, um But yeah, so that's been pretty handy. So then I just set it and it'll actually, you know, it'll go off and ding on my uh, desk. And then it's like, oh, it's time to stop. And, you know, I stop and take a break and then I can get right back into the flow. So that works out pretty well. So uh, I'm going to pick that. And um, I'm trying to think what else I'm going to pick here. I mean, honestly, I have a, a Fire Stick, an Amazon Fire Stick on my TV in here. And, and that's nice, sometimes I just come in here and hide from the kids and watch a show. So I'm gonna pick that as well. Uh, do you have some
1: picks? Oh, yes, actually. Um, so one is um, Martin Kletman uh, has been working on a library on GitHub called AutoMerge. This makes me really excited because about three years ago um, I was giving talks about um, CRDTs and kind of the space of distributed data structures. And at the time, actually a month or so before I gave that talk at JSConf Columbia, uh, Martin Kletman and his colleagues had published a paper on a JSON CRDT. So this is a data, data structure that can be distributed across machines and automatically resolves conflicts as people collaborate on it. And I read the, pe- the, the paper, got all excited and I was like, but man, this is gonna be a pain dry in JavaScript. I'm, you know, my academic reading is not so great. Well, I went back looking at the CRDT stuff again a few months ago to see if anything had changed. Well, yeah, Martin Kletman wrote an implementation of it, and it's gorgeous. The code is actually really, really nice. And it is, again, AutoMerge um, is the name of the library, and it is a CRDT for describing data shaped like a JSON
2: mm-hmm. and
1: automatically resolving conflicts between it. So imagine this. You've got a Redux application that syncs peer-to-peer with other applications just by syncing part of its state. It's pretty slick. So um, along those lines, I'm working on a new talk, kind of a follow up to the one I did a few years ago on um, the latest and greatest of sequence CRDTs. There's a lot of different Mm -hmm. CRDTs out there. You've got the set, the counter, but one of the spaces that continues to see a lot of innovation is list CRDTs. So um, Auto merge has an implementation of one of those, and then that kind of got me interested in some newer CRDTs. And because yeah, there's been a lot of work in that space, so that's really exciting to me. The other thing that's pretty cool is um, I don't know if you've had a chance to play with WebXR. WebVR mm-hmm. was a thing, and they kind of deprecated it. But WebXR is sort of the next step. Oh, nice. Hopefully, on the track to being standardized. Library for doing augmented reality and virtual reality through the same API. And so I went to play with it the other day on my phone because I switched to Android a few months ago just so I could have Chrome. That was pretty much the only reason I did it, honestly. And in Chrome Canary, you can do some really amazing augmented reality and virtual reality demos on the phone right now, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. It's still not standardized, but you can enable it behind flags. And that has me really excited because I did some augmented reality stuff for the classroom actually about four years ago. And it was kind of a pain. Thankfully, WebAssembly had landed. And so you could actually take some really amazing, uh, 3d libraries, compile them through WebAssembly and run them in the browser. But now we may not have to do that. So that's a pretty exciting space, especially as Apple and Android are all gung ho about AR and VR. Nice. Very,
0: very cool. I, I definitely want to check that out. I've been wanting to start an AR, VR, I guess, XR podcast for a while. So,
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Uh, challenges, I keep trying to find like a cheaper set of VR goggles, and then they just fall apart on me. So I probably just need right. to get some decent ones. The other cool thing that's sitting right next to me is um, a charger. Um, so, you know, MacBook, chargers, big giant bricks, not so great. Mm -hmm. Well, so about a year ago, um, man, I'm trying to remember the name of the company that makes it now. Probably if I could see my charger right now, I'd know which one it is. They made a tiny little charger that's about the size of a shot glass. And it pumps out a full 80, I think mine pumps out 85 watts or something like that. And it's pretty amazing. It's been going strongly for the last year. And um, I was just thinking about it the other day because I was at a coffee shop and there was a power strip out and there was this one tiny little gap left on the power strip because everyone else had their big bulky chargers in and I was just able to squeeze my little charger right in there. And I, was, I just thought I've won the internet.
0: Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Um, which which one is it? Is it the magnetic one or is it the USB-C one?
1: Is this is the USB-C one. I'm trying to remember what it's called now. I have it as part of my packing list. It's like Innovo. Innovate. No, not innovate. I'll probably remember it afterwards. Meanwhile, I've got it on my, I keep a evergreen packing list. Of, since I do uh-huh. a lot of travel, I keep a packing list of basically what my one bag looks like. And that charger uh, got added to the list for that reason, because it saved me so much weight. And since it's USB-C, I can also pl- uh, charge my Android. So I was able to ditch two chargers, which is pretty, pretty cool. If you're trying to travel the world with one bag.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not terrible having the giant charger in my bag, but, yeah, that would definitely be pretty nice. And uh, I think you need, like, yeah, like an 85-watt um, charger.
1: Yeah, so it's either a 60-watt watt or a 85-watt. I've got a 13-inch MacBook Pro here, so that if you've got a 15-inch, it might not actually power that quite enough. Yeah, I have a 15-inch, but... Ah, uh, you're right. Then, yes... But, so it probably won't do the eighty-five incher, but yeah, if you're the thirteen incher, the the Pro, and you have USB-C, it'll do the job.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah, I found another one on Amazon. Looks like it's about forty-five dollars, and it'll do. Um, it'll charge your phone, and um, and it puts out eighty-seven watts, and then it has one, two, three, four regular USB chargers on it too. So that that's looking pretty solid as well. But yeah, sounds good. Well, um, we asked where people can go to hire you. Is there any other place that people should go to see what you're doing on Twitter or GitHub or something like that?
1: Yeah. Uh, JonathanLeeMartin.com is definitely the main place to go, especially if you don't want to remember a bunch of links and stuff. Um, and that's got the social links as well. But If you want to hop directly to twitter that's um i'm nibbler so november yankee bravo bravo lima romeo a little phonetic alphabet for the day Ah, there we go all
0: right good deal well thank you for coming um we'll go ahead and wrap up this recording we'll have another my javascript story next week and in the meantime folks max out bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn